question has been asked, how do you make this practical? I, partly I want to say stick with me and in a later class we'll do that, but why don't I give you much better answers than that? Because I, um, and I don't know if I managed to get it across last week, but I really learned something when I was studying this that seems very, very practical to me and I, uh, I just, it, it struck me and of course I'm going to repeat it as I did last week and it'll be what you heard me say and it, it'll be what I myself have said many times in, in, in before and it's also what we've heard Swami say a gazillion times that um, all creativity begins on the level of thought and if your thoughts are very clear everything else follows naturally and nothing will ever work on this plane if your first premises are muddy and the difference between uh, those who really create and manifest really powerfully it all begins in the clarity of the vision that they're putting forward. Um, Swamiji over and over again tells us the story of his own creative process. I mean, you've been around a long time, Tom. You've heard him talk about it many times. We, even when he had that extraordinary year where he did so many different things in such a short period of time, for those to remind you, it was when he was supposed to write the book, um, How to Meditate, and then Warner changed the, the, the title to Superconsciousness and a book that he thought would be really easy to write because a book called How to Meditate is a really different book than Superconsciousness. So I think we now call it Awaken to Superconsciousness. He had two months to write a book. He said that should have taken him two years. He had three days in which to write a whole album worth of melodies that could be recorded, which came out as Mystic Harp One, and a whole bunch of other stuff. I mean, that's, those are just part of it. And that was all the year after he had his heart surgery, I believe. And he tells this story over and over again, and you just sort of think, um, why is he telling me this story? Those of you who are at Sunday service, I, I use the image of talking about how I've learned to understand Swamiji when I don't understand what he's doing. It's usually because I've placed an arbitrary starting and ending point on his actions, and within my little screen they don't fit my little concepts because they start and end in much different places. But a lot of that, when he talks about what he has accomplished, he's always trying to tell us what we can accomplish. He's trying to just wake us up out of our, oh, I had a busy year, you know, I went shopping three times and took a trip, but whatever, to show us what real energy can be like. But invariably, he will say, I put my consciousness at the point between the eyebrows, and I got very, I knew just what I wanted. And he'll talk about the melodies that he writes. He, gets, he says he, he doesn't know anything about music, but he gets extremely clear on what he wants. I want a melody that represents St. Francis' life during the early period. I want a melody that is about Pompeii. And you may have heard him say all these things about how Pompeii, where Vesuvius went off and all those people were killed. It was tragic. And so it has to be sort of a slightly mournful melody, but at the same time, it happened a really long time ago and now it's a tourist attraction, so you have all the tourists just kind of walking around looking at this old tragedy. I mean, very exact. And he wanted a melody that said all of those things. And I can't hum the melody because I don't remember it, but he got a melody that just did exactly that. And he didn't have to work at it because the work he put into it was he was extremely clear on what it was that he was trying to do. And once he was very, very clear on the causal plane, on the level of thought, Everything else follows from that, with some very important intervening stage, because between the causal plane and the material plane is the plane of energy. And so sometimes we have a clear idea of what we might want, but we don't put out the energy to manifest it. We try to skip stages, and that's what a lot of um, 
uh, I was, I'm, I'm saying derailed, demented, deranged, new age teaching was the line I was going to use after that. But what I mean to say is just slightly off balance. T teaching that sounds like it should work, but it won't. Demented, deranged is too strong, but that's just off. It, it, it looks like it would work. I used to get, as I, what I used to call refugees from those teachings. People who just had tried so hard to make their lives work according to these teachings and they thought there was something wrong with them when it really, it's a, with all due respect, largely a false teaching that you can just affirm. You just affirm that there's a lack of clarity in the affirmation, generally speaking, and, with, and there's almost always a lack of real appropriate energy between the thought and the manifestation. There's just a, a misunderstanding. It's a piece of truth, but not the whole truth. You have to put out energy, and you have to put out the right kind of energy. Swamiji said, and I may have said this in class, I don't remember, he was talking about um, the, the work he's put into rewriting his book, Hope for a Better World, which he's, it's, he's written it. He's put out four editions of that book in, in the first year, which is just really kind of crazy. But he rushed it into print, and now he's been spending time working on it. He finally finished what is probably the last version of it. But he, he said the difference between really good writing and what most people do is that most people don't have the energy to stick with it. They get a great inspiration, but they don't know how to just hold on without letting down the energy flow. And then he also added, and they don't have the detachment to look objectively at what they've done and to look at it with fresh eyes every time. Now, what does that, all that's about energy, isn't it? Because you've just, you've written it, and I mean, I do a little tiny bit of writing, and you write it, it sounds good to you. You just keep reading it over and over. Sometimes you read it to somebody else, and you realize how god-awful it is at that point. But, but until their fresh energy comes in at it, you just keep reading it over, because you haven't put out enough energy to detach yourself to look at it and see what it, it really is. Now, that's between the thought and the physical manifestation is all that energy, which is really a huge amount. Think of the example that was in here. The architect makes the plans, and then you have the building. Well, the architect puts out a, a tremendous amount of important work, but he's just all by himself there on that level. I mean, let's look at this huge church where we're sitting. There was the architect's plans, but think how many people, how long they had to labor. Just look at the re uh, remodeling we did inside. You know, Elizabeth and I and others in Maryland and... Others would sort of tootle around and make decisions about things, but boy, from the time we first thought of those words up on the wall to the time they were up on the wall, there was so much that had to be done in between. And we were pretty clear, we were pretty, pretty exact about it, but that didn't help us. It just was in, in the sense that we, there was no way to shortcut that effort in between. And it would, it's, it's very tempting. Elizabeth was incredible about the colors here. Several different times, I thought we had the color. And um, she didn't think we had the color. And she would just stick with it a little bit more. Because in that case, she had a very clear picture in her mind. I don't have that kind of um, color vision. She has color vision. So she, she knew the color she was looking for, and she hadn't seen it yet. So she kept shifting. And then she would see it. Boom, that was it. And we all would see it, and it was, that was the color. But, but it was tempting not to put out that much energy. In my case, I was willing to put out the energy, but I didn't have the clear thought. She had the clear thought. Part of her energy was to tell me that she was, that, that wasn't the right color, <laughs> that she had to keep going. But you see all of that? And that's all just right in there. So when we look at our lives and say, why isn't this working? You ask yourself, which one of those two stages, what, what am I not doing? Why isn't it coming out right? Even just, I'm going to use a very little example 
um, the joy symbol, which you see there on the wall, is extremely subtle. Swamiji um, got that vision in meditation. I mean, that's a superconscious symbol that uh, symbolizes the devotee's aspiration soaring up, the grace of God coming down. I mean, it, it symbolizes many things. There's the, the, the bottom is like a mountain peak that you go up toward. The, the, the downward slope is the bird, you know, the, um, the, the freedom of the bird. It has many, it's an arrow, divine grace descending. It's many different things. But all in all, it's a very subtle sign that gives you a picture of a feeling of joy. That's why we call it joy, the joy symbol. The motto that goes with it is joy is within you. Well, Swamiji saw it in meditation. He prayed to Divine Mother. He said, we need, for Ananda, we need a very simple symbol that really epitomizes who we are, that can be used in many ways, so on. He, he had a very clear idea, and then he saw this. He said he drew it out 75 or 80 times because it, he just couldn't get it exactly so until he got it just exactly the way he wanted it with the thick and the thin and it's even Cyrus pointed out to us it's just slightly off kilter both of the points aren't quite on the ground it's just you know just everything when we asked Swamiji if it was meant to be that way he said everything about that symbol is exactly as it's meant to be okay now that was a tremendous amount of energy just to get it so but what I was going to what I started to say instead of all of that is it's being reproduced all over Ananda but some of the reproductions are not right there, there, you, you go places and you look at it and it's just not quite the joy symbol. It's something that resembles the joy symbol, but it isn't the joy symbol. Even, uh, so it's because that, that, that physical manifestation, that very exact energy, oh, this is good enough. But that, all that habit of, oh, this is good enough, or I don't have the right skill, whatever, you understand? All of these things are very vital. So you come out close, but you don't come out where you really want it to be. Now, how do you actually do that? Well, part of most of it's a discipline. And energization exercises and Kriya, you see how everything is energy? Master's original contribution to the science of yoga is the energization exercises to increase your flow of energy, to put that energy consciously under your control. Quantity and quality of energy. Everything in life depends on quantity and quality of energy. Think about it. So he taught us energization exercises. You, every single day or twice a day, you consciously and determinedly learn to manage your energy. Because if you can manage your energy, you can bridge from the causal to the material world, which is what we're really trying to do. If you can't manage your energy, you always miss the mark. Just a little. You mean well, and we'll get it right eventually. Okay, everything's about lazy. He says this in here too. Yeah, sloth. Isn't it one of the seven deadly sins? Don't you love the word sloth? Some words just really like have it sloth. <laughs> it's a good word to just put up, you know, with a little, like a little thing, one of those no on it, sloth. Swamiji is just, he doesn't enjoy being tamasic. Do most of you know what the word tamasic means? Tamasic means slothful, in essence. Tama, tamoguna is the darkening quality, the quality that just brings everything down. Most of us enjoy being tamasic. I mean, we wouldn't say I enjoy being tamasic, but, you know, to lie abed for a whole day, to just kind of space around, to just not always work really hard. And there's a kind of pleasure in low energy. To Swamiji, like low energy is like poison. He just can't stand low energy. And he's always either generating activity or work or goals. But even when he's low energy, he's not low energy. He's just, because he doesn't like low energy, he doesn't enjoy it. 
It's, it's one of the most interesting, well, many differences between him and us, but that's one that I just really noticed. We, going on vacation with Swamiji, lately he's been more, his, you know, his body's slowing down. But you know, go on vacation with Swami, well, breakfast at nine? How about breakfast at 11, sir? <laughs> you know, breakfast at nine, we have breakfast at nine. It's a vacation, but that doesn't mean we're going to go into a state of sloth. We're just going to still be dynamic, even if we're dynamically relaxing. We're just not going to let our energy down because you must develop the habit of quality and quantity of energy. Master said the single essential for the spiritual path is energy. He said you can learn everything else if you have energy, but if you don't have energy, you can't do anything. You can't, you just, what, what can you do? And that's where Swami often has remarked that some people appear to be pious and holy, but they're just too lazy to sin. <laughs> they're not really good. They just haven't put any energy behind any of their desires. It's not that they don't have them. Sometimes, a, a, you know, a bad, a good thief is, is more spiritual than a, a church-going person because at least they're putting energy behind their desires. The other person may not have even gotten up the gumption to get what they want. And they look good, but it's not true. So, is that enough, Tom? Okay. <laughs> I'm not sorry you asked either, because I've thought a lot about it. But, yes, Marilyn. So you get a clear vision. Well, um, that, all of what you say comes under the category of teaching people how to develop intuition, which is the same thing. If you, you, you can't always just sit passively and wait for intuition to come to you. Sometimes the, way, so the phrase that Master uses is energy has its own intelligence. And you start generating energy and that, the flow itself, the flow itself puts you in tune with what it is you're trying to do. And so, well, I used to write promotional things for Ananda and I would invariably write them and I would invariably give them to Swamiji and he would invariably throw them away and rewrite. We did this for many years. And then, I, and then I reached a point once where I just quit for quite a few years. I just couldn't do it anymore. But he would always say to me, if you hadn't written that, I wouldn't have been able to write it because what you wrote showed me what we shouldn't be writing. <laughs> or else, if it wasn't that blatant, it was, you know, it just kind of started the ball rolling and helped define the energy and then he was able to take it to the next stage because I didn't have the clarity or the energy or the intuition to know. And he would, you know, he would often shock me with what he would do because it would never have occurred to me to do that. It wasn't, sometimes he would, he would take what I wrote. Sometimes he would keep what I wrote. Sometimes he would take what I write and he would write and he would improve it. Sometimes he would say that that's just the wrong direction. But then I didn't know that until he, you know, and then as I've gotten better and I've developed some actual intuition of my own, I can tell, I can look back and I can see, well, that really wasn't right because I just wasn't subtle enough and I did, wasn't working hard enough, and I wasn't working smart enough, all of the things that are, that, are, that are the bane of our existence that we have to work on. But whatever method works is fine, because <laughs> sooner or later it comes to clarity. So I think that's an important clarification. To have the thought of it accurate does not mean you're sitting there getting the thought accurate. Sometimes it means that you're working, just trying to get the energy moving, and then it gradually comes into focus. Swamiji can generate it like that, mostly. But most of the rest of us can't, in fact. So it's a good point to realize. Sometimes it's so, though. When, when Karen and I were working on the Ananda uh, Answers website, which was a very big and complicated project, huge project, 
um, we were working on it for quite a few weeks and I just couldn't bring it together and then one day we were in the middle of talking about some aspect of it and just like suddenly I just grabbed a piece of paper because I could suddenly see how the whole thing should be structured and I just scribbled out like a, a, a structure for it which was different than the structure we were using and then from that moment I was able to go forward but I just we had to just go in circles a little bit and then boom it clicked in so there was a point and there usually is a point in any project when you're inside of it and you know how it goes so it doesn't matter how you get there just get there yeah um, it would be energy that's more superconscious than subconscious or more superconscious than ego oriented in a sense truly all energy is divine but what you mean is energy that comes from a more pure level of awareness more intuitive and not just intuitive in this sense what I mean is it's more original it's like intuition is the truth exactly right now um, and sometimes we have principles that we're familiar with when, when I'll use a very personal example to give you just the distinction that I know sometimes when I'm tired or I've been giving too many classes or I'm distracted I'll do what I call I teach from memory which is oh the topic is channeling okay I'll talk about channeling and I'll just talk but I'll be talking from what I know is true and I've always known is true sometimes if the flow is right I know that what I'm saying right now it's not from memory it's from an immediate perception of what's happening that's divine energy that's more super conscious energy and a lot of times you know we all know that I'm sure Sharon is a musician sometimes you play the notes and sometimes the notes play you right I find that with just the little kirtals sometimes I play the kirtals and sometimes the kirtals play me right and sometimes I give this the lectures and sometimes the lectures give me and you never know when it's what the difference is going to be but and I don't all everybody start trying to guess which way it is <laughs> It made me very nervous. As soon as I started saying that, I thought, oh my God, what's going to happen next? Okay, yes, Rick. I know, I was just going to say, Rick always knows. Rick said, you were bored tonight, weren't you? You bet I was. <laughs> it's very boring for me to teach from memory. Extremely boring, because I already know it. It's not the words or the concepts or anything like that. It's whether or not it's in the moment or whether it's old. So intuition to me is just the now. You know, and that's what Swami would say to me. My last writing project before I quit for six or seven or eight years was we were writing, um, we, were t we used to have a brochure called What is Ananda? I, I forget this whole period of my life, but there was a period of time when I was writing a lot of the promotional material for Ananda Village. Was, and I wasn't, it's not really my fort, forte to be able to do that, but there was nobody better. And I had written this brochure called What is Ananda? Which was a big question when we were just Ananda Village and we hardly knew ourselves. So there was this nice brochure with a picture of the publications building and goats. I mean, I, who? Tom, would you remember that? Maybe you would remember it, Dharma, Rick. It was very old. And it was just about, it was pretty well written. I found it recently. I was, I was pretty impressed. It told all about what Ananda was in a very practical way. It, it talked about our spiritual vibration, but it also talked about how many acres we had and the schools and the businesses and all of that sort of stuff. Well, that gradually got out of date. And so we needed another what is Ananda brochure. 
This is a question because there was approximately 10 or 15 years at Ananda when there was no brochure called What is Ananda? And we always needed one, and we didn't have one, and here's why we didn't have one. I was my job to write it, and I'm not fast, and it took me a long time, and I finally took that one, and I wrote it again, essentially. I, I thought it was very well written, and I actually found it, too. It was. It was very nicely written. It was very magnetic and very good, and I gave it to Swamiji. And his response was, you've done what you set out to do very well, but it's not what's needed now. And then what he did is he, he just went completely elsewhere. And the first pages of the brochure were about all the miraculous things that had happened to make Ananda happen. He told just sort of one miracle story after another and just kind of went that way and then threw in a few facts. And that was what it was. Now, I read that brochure recently, too. I've sorted all of my files over the last year. And it just seemed like a very obvious, wonderful, marvelous thing. At the time, for reasons that are obscure to me, we were all just totally freaked out by that brochure. It's just like we wanted to tell people how many acres we had and about the goats and things like that. And Swami wanted to talk about the miraculous power of God in our lives. And it just we just couldn't deal with it. So... We couldn't use mine, and nobody wanted to use his. So for 10 years, we didn't print anything. And every so often, somebody would ask, and there was just like this hopeless impasse. We didn't know what to do. But, he, but what he said to me was, was just exactly that. What you wrote was fine, but it's not what's needed now. I sat down, and, from, and I used my mind, and I logically thought, but he said, you didn't tune in. You didn't really tune in to where the energy was going. You just thought logically and wrote it from memory. And, you know, it was, it was, at that, one, that point I did, I quit. I just stopped. I couldn't do it anymore. I didn't, know, I didn't know how to do what he was asking me to do. And I couldn't keep doing what I was doing because that wasn't working either. I don't think it was the wisest move on my part, but I just stopped. Now I think they finally, like, enough time has passed that they have nobody, there's only a few of us living who still know that whole story. <laughs> in fact, I'm one of the few because I was so intimately involved in it. But anyway. But that's channeling also to bring it to our subject tonight, that's channeling. One is to act from the level of our ego, the other is to channel a higher level of consciousness, to listen to the angels, to listen to the masters. They're there saying, don't just do it the way you've always done it, honey. Be original. Go to your source. Figure out what you're really supposed to do. That's what you should do right now. Don't just do what's logical or reasonable or practical or good or familiar. But, of course, it's dangerous to do that. It's, it's, it, it, you have to have more courage, and you often are wrong. You have to have enormous humility. You can't say, oh, this is my superconscious contribution that really doesn't give people a lot of margin to feed, feed back. But you try, and you work with it, and you just keep going. I can't... It's, a, it's the biggest challenge of my life, certainly. And I think it's a big challenge for everyone to really sort of live on that level, try to live superconsciously. Yes? Swami alludes to the fact that unless you're being, moving from intuition and being creative, you're not living the Pretty explicitly, doesn't he? In that book, The Art of Art is a Hidden Message, he really says that, that you have to be a channel for superconsciousness. Superconsciousness is creative, artistic, beautiful. And he, it's actually, it's in here, you know, to come into our chapter, which we are, really. We're talking all around it, and this is all quite relevant. When he just talks about what the astral world is really like and how it is a part of our present reality, among the, the points of being practical, that's the other thing that I really got last week. This is not like something other. This is exactly what's happening now. 
This is not like we're here on the earth plane manifesting physical things. We are not here on the earth plane. We are in the causal world. We're in the astral world and we're on the earth plane. And it, we have such a tendency to just see it backwards. We think that the big part is here, you know, and this is the real big world. And then somehow it skinnies down and then there's this little tiny part. But it's really the opposite. This is the big part. And we've come all the way from all of that down to this little point of focus. But we need to just like literally be moving all the time from that, from the causal level, really. I know that's not where, if we don't have that state of realization, we at least need to be affirming it, but not in, not in an airhead sort of way. But just affirming it from the point of view of that's how we want to be. We want to live in this world from where it really comes from. There's a statement in here that is so good to me. It says, on, on the astral plane, the expression of life, manifestly on the astral plane, the expression of life and consciousness is the one true purpose of God's creation. This is his purpose as well on the material plane, but here it is less obviously so. Okay, and I was, uh, I don't remember what I was, I can't remember what the context was, but just this, oh, I know what it was. I was looking at a magazine called Money. There's a whole, I mean, of course, you all may well know this. There's a magazine called Money. Maybe it has other names with it, but the big word is money. And the magazine is about money, right? And it's all about making money by investing and this and that. And I just, I, I tried to, I'm interested in everything. I have a very curious mind. I have a hard time getting interested in that magazine because it was just all about money. <laughs> And I, could, I just couldn't help but think, when I read this, the purpose of the life is, is to manifest God's love and consciousness. You know, the purpose of life is not to make money. And, and making money won't do it for us. And of course, everybody says that, and everybody goes, ha, 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 and then they, we all go out and try to make money. You know, we all say, yes, that's absolutely right, and then we go try to make more money, because it certainly feels like the purpose of life is to make money. And it certainly feels like if we had more money, everything would go better here. But the purpose of life is to manifest divine consciousness. And when you manifest divine consciousness, it works. And when you don't, it don't. You know, you, it just doesn't work. It appears to work. You get all these things that you think you want. You see, you see like you're doing better than everyone else. There was one ad. There's a woman sitting on, in a beach chair on one of those beautiful sunsets, and I think the ad said, imagine owning the beach house. Imagine owning the beach. Imagine owning the island. <laughs> and I thought of this chapter where it says, it's not enough. We, we don't want to just have beauty. We want to own it. We want it to be exclusively ours. And of course, to do that, you need money. I was listening to a tape that, of one of... I mean, I, we have to be practical, but I want to be practical. Because how do you deal with all of that? you move from the causal level. And if you're still trying to earn money, because you have to earn money. I, I look at Matt here. Matt has a family to support. You know, it's a real thing. You live in Silicon Valley. You raise two sons as you're doing. It ain't cheap. You know, you can't just sort of float home and say to your boys, you know, no more new tennis shoes because I'm not interested in money. It's, it's a real thing. You have a real responsibility. You've got to do it. It's really <laughs> 
That's how David talks about me, too, Matthew. You can think about it. But in any case, you have to do it. And it's no accident. God gives you your karma. He really does. He gives you your karma. But if you move through it from the point of view that this is an exercise for me to develop divine qualities. And, you know, these are the, this is, this is literally the game I'm playing. And it's a real game. But it's not a game in the sense that it's trivial because you have real responsibilities. We have real responsibilities. More than that, these are the direct and actual challenges that are put in front of us, lest otherwise we succumb to sloth, right? Because sloth is a bigger enemy than money, really. To be absolutely aggressively pursuing money is better than not pursuing it because you're too slothful to do it. That is not progress. That's why many people appear to be holy, but they're really just too lazy to pursue the money. And many people may appear materialistic, but they're actually making more progress because they're learning to go from the causal to the astral to the material plane, even if they've never heard those words. They're practicing all the time, just what you were saying, divine creativity. They remember, maybe they came from the money planet. And they, you know, they hung out in the astral world with all the investors. Believe me, they're there. If that's what you're interested in, I mean, I probably... You know, tomorrow is September 11th, and by no means do I make light of people suffering, but, you know, an entire investment company was wiped out. They're probably in investment heaven right now, working on the stock market for the next time. You know, if that's, if that's your passion, that's where you go. Manifesting money is really a very good thing. It's better if you manifest it for a good cause. Yogananda actually made the extraordinary statement that um, manifesting money, how did he say, honestly and creatively for a good cause is the next greatest art to realizing God. Now that is really a statement, isn't it? Because in order to do it, honestly, creatively, he said something else, industriously. Industriously. Pardon me? After meditation. After meditation. Yeah, after meditation, after the art. But the point being, in order to do that, you've got to get the causal, astral, and material planes real integrated because you're really creating energy. That's what money is, especially when you're doing it for a good cause. Look at Rajasi Janakananda. I mean, uh, Rajasi, yes, right? Ra- Rajasi. He wasn't, he was, was he Rajasi Janakananda? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm certainly not teaching from memory tonight, that's for sure. <laughs> I can't even remember real basic things. Oh, Lord. Anyway, but I mean, he was a self-made millionaire and a, and a, and a, a liberated being. That's just really something. And then Paula, who was my dearest friend, my dear friend, who died and died an extraordinarily courageous death. And Swami said these words, which were not conclusive, but certainly fascinating, that she may well have been fully liberated, he said. May have been liberated, he said, because people don't die with the kind of courage and consciousness that she does unless they have a very high state of consciousness. She was certainly one of the kindest people I've ever known. She went, had to file personal bankruptcy. You know, it's a, it's a strange world, but Paula could manifest beauty, you know, out of, a, you know, a, a rotten carrot and a burned-out candle. She could just put them together, and then you had something beautiful there. She wasn't good at money, but Rajasi made money. It's, it's, a, it's a funny business, so whatever you're given to do, you just do it with divine consciousness, and that's what's important about all of this. You do it as a channel, as a true channel for higher consciousness. So we were somewhere that I have totally lost. Does somebody have a question?
None. Okay, I'll have to find my thread then. Pardon me? Yes, right? I think the most important thing is not to do things from memory. You know, I, it's really, I just, I sort of threw that out because it's, it's a phrase that has per- meaning to me because I recognize it. But I think the greatest bane to all of us is that we just do things because that's the way we've always done them. Master said it's very important to constantly change. He said, in fact, just for the sake of doing it, change your habits on a regular basis. Because otherwise they become, you know, ingrained in your subconscious. I know when Brian Powers had an operation and he had to go under full anesthesia, which kind of muddles up your brain cells, he got up the next morning and he combed his hair. And after he'd finished, he realized he'd combed it just the way he used to comb it in junior high school, and he hadn't done it since then. (laughs) But it was just a completely subconscious gesture. And uh, th- that's anathema. Subconsciousness is the opposite of superconsciousness. And so in every situation that we're in, don't ever just find the answer from yourself. I mean, it, Swami just puts it, always try to live superconsciously. I mean, when, really, literally, when we get to the last two chapters of this, we'll talk about it a little bit more. But it's just realized that right in this minute, you know, uh, like Dr. Ritchie, people who've had these death and return experiences, they, they, Dr. Ritchie, who wrote Return from Tomorrow, is there anybody in here who's church staff, Joe and Linda? Could we get that book back in the boutique, Return from Tomorrow? Do we? It's so good. But he said he realized when he died and went to the other side and came back, it came to him, because Jesus said to him, how much have you loved? I won't tell the whole story now, but that's the essence of it. And he hadn't loved very much at all, and he was really not happy with dying and being asked that question because he didn't have much to offer at that point. But he said he realized that there was not one single encounter in his life which was not important. And that, and it was the most important thing that was said, one encounter that was not important. There was no such thing as an unimportant interaction. And that, every, and that he, he trained himself from that, that every time he was in front of anyone, he remembered Jesus asking him, how much have you loved? And, and you start with the premise of how much, you know, how can I love? Not how can I answer their question, how can I solve their problem, how can I get them out of my hair? Now, bear in mind, that doesn't mean that you never get any work done, or you never speak unkindly, or you never disappoint people, because you can love people. In fact, the best way to love them is to be appropriate. But whatever situation you're in, just take that split second and ask yourself, where is my consciousness? Is my consciousness just trying to get through this? Or is my consciousness really trying to be a channel for what is divinely needed here? That's the true channel concept. That's why Swami tells us this whole story, how to be a true channel, by going to this extreme, detailed explanation of what higher levels of consciousness than this plane of consciousness are like. He's not talking... The reason he focuses so much on the astral world is because, as I mentioned last week, the kind of channeling he was trying to... uh, contrast this to is the kind where disincarnate entities speak through incarnated people. So he's trying to demystify the disincarnate world. That was part of it. But he also uses Yogananda as an example. And what's the difference between Yogananda and us? Yogananda lived on the superconscious plane while in his physical body. But all of us have that capacity. Our brain can do it. Our, we have the human brain. We have the human spine. We have the chakras. We can do it. It just depends on whether we're looking up 
or we're looking straight out or we're looking down. And, and you have to watch you know, all those qualities of attitudes. It gets very practical. You know, the attitude of, I don't want to bother. I mean, how, how many times have all of us just screwed something up because we just didn't want to bother? What was that about? That's about energy. You know, we knew it was wrong, but we didn't want to put out the energy. Or somebody came to us and they made us nervous. And so we wanted to get rid of them. They really were going to need an explanation and a, a, a risking on our part, an involvement in energy and need that we didn't want to do. So we just give them the answer that we remember because the present now answer is just too hard to give. You know, those are all the, all the issues. What is the clear concept I'm trying to put forward now? And am I really putting it forward? And it doesn't really take any time. It, but we just have to be allowed. It doesn't take any more time. In fact, it takes less time because things go better and you're more certain. But it takes attention is what it takes. And that's where it takes energy because it's easier to go to sleep and act from memory. Just do it. And in, that's, that's what institutions do. People just always want to have an answer that doesn't require me to be present and conscious. I can just look in the rule book and this is what happens. You know? But it, it doesn't, that doesn't help us at all. Dharma. We have this conflict. You know, the question is, why do we keep going to sleep? Is it just a habit to do so? Yeah, it's a habit to do so. That's exactly right. That's why over the years, and I've seen Swamiji less so now. I mean, it's almost like he's, he's reached the top of the mountain. He doesn't have to work so hard to climb it. Just extremely conscientious over every little thing. I can remember an incident where he was going on a trip, he was exhausted, he was on his way to Europe, he was stopping overnight in London, we have a meditation group there, he really, he was, he, he was going back and forth between checking into the airport hotel and just getting a good night's rest and calling our meditation group leader there and giving a satsang that night. And I, of course, advocating in a protective sort of way, was trying to get him to just check into the airport hotel and he kept putting his hand on the phone to call the man in London and taking his hand off the phone and putting it back and taking it off. And finally I said, you're torn, aren't you, between your desire to just check into that airport hotel and your desire not to have to reincarnate to give this thoughts on, aren't you? In other words, to, to just not meet the challenge that's in front of you and therefore have to face it again later. And then he picked up the phone and called him and gave the satsang because he said, yes, that was exactly what it was. Because we have this habit of mind, thinking that if we put out less energy, it'll be better. Now, in Swami's case, he, he's more intuitive than that, but it, it is exactly a habit, and that's why you have to fight the battle. You have to fight the battle all the time when it's easier. And this is one of Swamiji's important rules and master's rules. Fight the, fight the battles you can win, but fight them vigorously. And he said, run away from the battles you can't win, because you don't want to get the thought of you're being a loser. You don't want to get the thought of defeat in your mind. He said, uh, the, uh, when you're faced with a battle, Master said, when you're faced with a battle you can't win, the better part of wisdom and courage is to run away. Because if you're defeated, you'll, you get that thought in your mind that I wasn't able to do it. If you avoid it, you're really just waiting. To, you're going to do it later. Like if you have an encounter with someone that you know you can't remain even-minded about, if, just whatever it might be. But, but the... That's where Master said, take care of the minutes and the incarnations will take care of themselves. If on a minute-by-minute -minute basis you try to choose the higher option. Now, I didn't say the highest. The, way, the best way to think about this is in every situation there's always a spectrum. 
there's the, there's the lowest aspect of the situation and there's the highest aspect. No matter how, how, low the, how low the top is, there's always a lower point than that. I mean, using an example, if you have a tendency to overeat and you have a box of, I just did this the other day. I, I was traveling and I, uh, I just wanted something to munch on. I really didn't need to eat anything, but I really wanted something to munch on and I wanted it to be sweet. But if I knew I ate a lot of it, I would deeply regret it. But I wanted some. So I stopped at Starbucks. I bought this big scone. I got, immediately got in the car and I broke off three quarters and I threw it out the window. Because <laughs> I knew there was nothing else I could do. If it was in the car, I would munch it up because I was just so bored. But I threw it out the window right away. Okay? The best thing would have not to have been bought, bought the scone at all. But I bought the scone, so I threw three quarters of it away. That, that, and that's like, you know, there's your picture. And in every situation, the dishes need to be done, but you're really tired and you want to go to bed, so at least you'll stack them and rinse them a little bit. You're not going to really do it, but you're going to do a little bit of it. Maybe you really have work to do, but you really want to go to the beach, but you ought to do some work so you, can, <laughs> you turn on your computer, so it'll be easier when you get home, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm not talking about big victories here. I'm just talking about the constant habit of, of raising your energy. You know, getting between that thought and the manifestation to just put out a little energy. That's just, that's the whole key. Between our aspirations and their manifestation is the energy. So just keep trying. And what we all discover, every one of us knows, you feel so good when you've done the right thing. And it's so boring to do the wrong thing day after day. You would think that we wouldn't have to struggle so hard, but we do, because there's maya in the middle. Just some miasma. We channel the wrong thing. We channel the dark planes, we channel the low consciousness instead of channeling the higher consciousness. Because you are nothing, you don't exist. Your, your level of consciousness is the battleground between subconsciousness and superconsciousness. That's all. It's a, it's a fascinating way to think about it. You're either going to channel subconsciousness or you're going to channel superconsciousness. And there's nothing, there's no, there's no in-between point. The conscious level is the battlefield between the two levels. And sometimes the superconscious is coming through, and sometimes the subconscious is coming through. But one or the other always is. You're either doing something that's going upward. Well, that's not exactly true, because there's, there's just playing rajasic where you're just making noise, right? <laughs> but that's like neutral. You know, you're not really subconscious. You're not really pulling anything down, and you're not lifting anything up. You're just making noise in the middle, right? It's neutral gear waiting to decide whether you're going to go forward or backward. And really, a lot of us spend a lot of time there, <laughs> spinning our wheels, making noise, because we're too bored. Right? Or we're just really trying to decide. Treading water, trying to decide whether to swim or not. Does that make sense? Okay. If there's any other question? If not, I'm going to have to take a break, because I don't know what else to say. Okay, let's... Oh, wait. Brent had a question. Wait, before you stand up. Mm -hmm. In... Brenda asked the question, how can we avoid channeling the wrong thing or the wrong entities? Um, there, there are sort of two questions. We've been, we were talking the whole, a whole lot about how can you avoid channeling the wrong energy, and there's no wrong energy, there's just energy that's less, less uplifted than others, and, and that's the whole science of the spiritual path, is how can you put your consciousness on the right plane. But I think the other question you were asking is, uh, how can you not channel actively bad 
consciousness, disincarnate entities or so on like that. One of the things that, again, Swami's trying to say here by talking so much about the astral world here, is he's trying to help us to understand, because he was countering when he wrote this book, this movement of, of individuals who, who become passive and allow other individuals to use their bodies and speak through them. Okay. And there's a certain mystique about it because my personality changes and some other voice comes through and that voice identifies itself and has all these other experiences and it, it gives the impression that it must be something extraordinary because it's so out of the ordinary. But what you have to understand is that's a dead person. It's just a dead person. That's all it is. It could be anybody who, who presently does not have a physical body, who's presently in the astral world and wants to be in the physical world or wants to, as Swami says here, they want, they want to come into the physical... At the end of this chapter, he says, the um, astral beings have other reasons for reaching out to people on earth. This is after he talked about angels. He said, one is the desire of earthbound souls. And by earthbound means their consciousness is bound to the earth. They're not able to let go of material experiences and just be in the astral world. They're bound to the earth for various reasons to experience before their allotted time the pleasures of the material world. They hate being in the astral world. They want to get back into a physical body, but it's not divinely right for them because something else is trying to happen, but they're insisting. So they go around, literally, they go around and they look for people whose consciousness, who are so blank-minded that they can inhabit them. They look for people who are drunk. They look for people who are on drugs. They look for people who are habitually passive. You know, in the Bible, Jesus was casting devils out of people all the time. And he was, you know, telling them to be gone. It wasn't just something that happened. Then it happens a lot now. You hear, you see people do bizarre things. And they wake up from it and they feel like someone made them do it. I was, interestingly, I had a conversation with a, the chaplain at uh, one of the local jails. She was a great woman. She actually jokingly said, she says, I'm like just all the other people in here. She said, I, uh, I, I'm serving a term and I can't get out. She said, God put me in here and he won't let me out. You know, I didn't, I didn't plan to be here as long as I am, but I have a term too, just like that. She said, that's what I tell my boys. That's how she put it. But she was talking about, she said, these men that she was working with, many of them talk about that w during the time they committed their crime, and often they were really very bad crimes, they, they essentially blanked out. And they just sort of came to this certain point, and then they don't even really remember what they did. Now, I'm sure not all of those are cases where some other dark entity came into them, but I'm sure some of them are. Where you just, either because you were drunk, so many uh, uh, bad things are done in, in when you're inebriated, and you're really not in control of yourself anymore, and there's just enough lack of dynamic consciousness that somebody else who's pushing, who frequents places where they know that this kind of thing will happen. That's why, that's why places have bad vibes. Dark astral entities are drawn to dark places. Even they're drawn to clutter. Yogananda even said, don't keep your broom out because it attracts dark entities because they like the dirt. And I remember in the early years of Ananda when it was very tamasic and chaotic, Swami Chidananda came from India, and he said, you have to clean this up. He said, all of this attracts dark astral entities. And that's why being neat and orderly is more than just 
a habit, it, it's, it, it, it creates the right vibration. But anyway, and then he also says another reason is the desire for power. For power is a temptation in the astral world. So you're an astral being up there and you see that you have this power to influence because if, you have a, if you're expanded enough to be able to relate to the material world, you see, just as he's saying here, angels put ideas into our mind. And so did devils, so to speak. And, and a person you can, now you have to think about these things in very practical ways. There's somebody there who realizes that he can influence people and he enjoys playing God, so to speak, right? And maybe he realizes that he can inhabit so-and-so's body and then he can speak and people treat him like a God, right? And he likes it. I mean, there's no gender, so you have to say it, but he or she or it likes it. So when somebody is just talking like that, they are letting a dead person use their body. And it's probably a dead person that you wouldn't like if they were alive because it's not, generally speaking, a very refined dead person who will do that because it just isn't the way things really work. Now, you have to appreciate, however, that in order for that to happen to you, you have to really not be there because it's not that easy for one entity to push another one out. So that's why we never teach people to meditate by making your mind blank. We, we never teach people to be passive and to be mindless. You know, everything, with all due respect, Brenda, you're not in much danger, okay? <laughs> because you're very much there at all times, right? But you see people who are very, very passive and are just really weak and have no willpower and, you know, just look like they're they would like somebody else to run their lives, right? And sometimes if they wanted enough, somebody will run their lives. Connie and I were talking about this this morning. Swamiji made the statement about how, how bad it is for you to have someone else's energy overlaid on yours, you know, because they come into your body, they use your body, and I was even realizing your very physical manifestation is the result of the consciousness that inhabits it. So you're inhabiting the body and then you become a, a passive channel for another entity and their whole vib vibratory dynamism runs through your cells. And then they go away, but you're left with the physical form and you've got two forms of energy. I mean, it's just, it's just very, very bad. And the passivity implied is also very bad. To be so passive that you can't even inhabit your own body is not healthy. Now, a few people that we know channel and they're really nice people. Are they really channeling disincarnate entities? Are they going into a trance state and channeling some other aspect of their own conscious, subconscious? I don't know. I don't want us to sort of stand in judgment about all this, but what I'm telling you is also true. Yes, Brenda? Uh, is this also a danger for very elderly people? That's a very good question, Brenda. I have no idea. Um, what does happen with Alzheimer's is the, it, all censoring disappears, and you just live in the total uncensored self. And so all the fears, all the angers, all the confusion, um, sometimes Alzheimer's people are, are very sexually inappropriate. Very sexually inappropriate because the conscious mind that um, censored all that and could tell what was appropriate and what wasn't is just gone. So any impulse that arises happens. And the ability to tell the difference about things. My beloved daddy has Alzheimer's now and they called me from the place where he lives. He's in a wonderful place. They take care of him. And <laughs> they were very concerned. They felt they had to report to me. The first they said, we've called poison control and it's all just fine. I said, what? 
because my father was sitting there happily at the dinner table. He ate his dinner and then he ate the flower arrangement. <laughs> yeah, because, because it was on the table, it looked pretty much the same to him, so he just ate that too. And you know, they explained to me how that they knew that the gardenias weren't good for him, but they wouldn't die and so on like that. But, but I just laughed. I knew they wanted to laugh too, but they had to be serious with me. I just think, I thought it was so funny. Yeah, so they just come out with whatever's there. I think that God would protect you. Do you know what I mean? I think you, that would only happen to you if you were, if it was, merely because you're demented does not mean you're actually passive, because all that's broken is your brain. It's not your, it's not your willpower, your personality, your personality hasn't really changed, just your brain has changed. Your capacity to express your personality has changed. Also, my mother never said they're not at all blank. They're just full of stuff. It's just that they're, they're really quite full of stuff. Yeah, it's, it's quite a kick when you just kind of relax and take it. You know, it's really quite fun. I, uh, anyway. Well, it depends. It depends. I, I speak of myself because my daddy's gotten really, really sweet. And it's, he's, just like, he's just like a very sweet child. Yeah, uh, but I know some people get angry and upset and so on. But it, it's just the brain. Swami Kriyananda, when uh, one of Yogananda's very advanced disciples, a woman named Kamala Silva, who was a, a great disciple, she wrote the book, The Flawless Mirror and Priceless Precepts. She ended her life totally in uh, dementia. I don't, think she, I don't know if she had Alzheimer's or what. I don't think she did. I think she just had senior dementia in a very big way. For quite a few years, she was just totally out of it. She um, had always loved animals. She thought all her stuffed animals were alive. She was in some horrible nursing home, as it ended up for various reasons. She was with us at Ananda for a while, and then her family took her away, and they put her into some really grisly um, nursing home. But she thought it was wonderful. She just thought everyone there was a saint, and she thought she was somewhere in the Himalayas, and, and it was all fine to her. And uh, when I first heard about her, I said I, I, to Swamiji, I said, oh, Swamiji, that's just terrible. He just looked at me and said, Asha, it's just her mind. He didn't even say brain. He said, Asha, it's just her mind. And to me, I thought, but it's her mind. That was not comforting. And then I met her, and it was so clear to me that the only thing wrong with her was that her mind was gone. That, that everything else about her was just fine. She just somehow, the spirit was just fine. But the mind was gone. So she could no longer play the game of understanding what was going on here. She didn't have any idea what was going on here, and she mixed it all up completely. For a while, she was conscious enough to be able to say things like, tell me your name, dear, but as soon as you tell me, I'll forget it. <laughs> you know, the next moment, I'll forget it. Um, but, uh, and she could always remember Master. She just knew who Master was, always. She couldn't pull out much more, but she just remembered Master. But I was standing next to her, and I could see the only thing wrong with her, she'd lost her mind. Yeah. And when I'm next to my daddy, who's a very good man, I can just feel that all he's lost is his mind. It's, it's, I, was in a, I was teaching, I was giving a Sunday service at Ananda Village once, and there was a very odd energy. I, it actually was there. It was in the back left corner as I was looking at it. The whole time, there was just a, a peculiar energy, and you're sort of in a flow, and... But every time my attention would go over there, there was such a peculiar energy. It wasn't bad, it wasn't good, it was just peculiar. And I'm walking out of the church up there, and I look over, and there is like a dozen mentally retarded adult women there. 
that somebody had brought to our church service, you know, to take them on an outing. And it was just like such a, an unusual consciousness. But then it occurred to me, of course, they don't have retarded souls, you know? <laughs> I mean, as soon as they, they're dead, they're perfectly fine. It's just that their brains don't work. And, as a, and that's just the same as a, an older person. Their brains don't work anymore. So whoever they are, they can't get it through, depending on how they feel about things is whether that's a frustrating or a perfectly indifferent experience. And depending on what the content of their subconscious is, it also, you know, my daddy gets frustrated sometimes. He can't. He, he clenches his fists and kind of shakes a little bit, but the good news is he forgets <laughs> right away. <laughs> and he's fine. Yeah. Um, to finish this question here, it, it, it was uh, our, um, Amintha Jen then asked me also, essentially about being visited by disincarnate entities, which is a very real thing. Um, there was a, a woman uh, who came to live in our community for a period of time. She was genuinely possessed. This was in the very early years of Ananda. Her name was Mohini. Swami called her Mohini. I can't remember what her other name was. She was from a very wealthy, extremely mixed up family. She'd been on tranquilizers since she was a teenager. And she came to Ananda. This was in the early years, and we were so naive. We thought we would cure her. So the, the little group of women who lived together in the monastery, we decided we would cure her. So we took her in, and uh, we took her off all her drugs. And we just decided that we would cure her. We learned. It was, it was a fascinating experiment. And, uh, but, she, but we, at one time, this Indian doctor, this intuitive Ayurvedic Indian doctor came and he examined her and he just simply pronounced her possessed. He said he, he named several entities, including her own dead, one of her dead parents, just possessed her. And that was what made her so crazy. She was really crazy. She eventually jumped off a building. And she eventually left. I mean, she was really nuts, but she needed to. That body was so useless. It was so corrupted. But she did a lot of good things. Um, the bangles that I wear, she bought bangles. For, she was very wealthy. She bought all the monks and nuns. She bought bangles for all the monks and nuns, which we couldn't have afforded at that time. And, uh, and, and Swami's jeweled bangle, she bought that. So, you know, she earned a lot of good karma for herself. So we all sort of felt when we heard that her demons had made her jump off a building that it was probably just as well because she was in such a mess. It would just be better to let her get the good karma of what she'd done and go on. But, but because she was possessed, she was very peculiar. But when she would go to sleep, her entities would visit others of us. Visit others of us. We all lived in these little trailers. Now, you know, this, this may be subjective and this may not actually be true because I, can't, I never saw them. But I felt them. You just wake up and you would feel that there was somebody in there with you and it wasn't anybody you particularly wanted to spend time with. And it, it, it made me very nervous at first. You know, it just made me very nervous. And I would turn on the lights and I would chant and it just, I didn't quite know what to do. My friend Seva, who is a calmer, more courageous disposition than me, just related to it completely differently. She woke up and they were in there and she just talked to them. And she said things like, this really isn't right. What are you doing here? You shouldn't be here. You're tormenting me. You're tormenting her. You should just get on with your life. Why are you here? And she just counseled them as if she would have counseled anyone. She was a very rather stern counselor sometimes. You know, she just told it like it is, and she just told it like it was, which was the obvious thing to do. 
And that's, and then Dr. Patak, this Indian doctor, that's just what he told us to do. Well, first of all, he said many things that are very true. They are non-physical. They have no way of accessing you. The only way they can access you is through the vibrations of your mind. And the vibrations that negative entities feed on is fear. So if they arrive and you're fearful, boom, you have a match. Right? And so he said the antidote to fear, what casts out fear? Love. Love is the antidote to fear. So even though my friend Seva was stern with them, as she was often stern with all of us, but she was always very loving. I mean, when I say she was stern, I just meant that she was, she was very straightforward, but always very loving. So her first response was, you poor dears, you must be miserable. You know, what a place to be stuck, sort of hanging around this poor crazy girl, and then when she goes to sleep looking to have a good time with us, I mean, you know, this is really a bad situation for you. You can't be enjoying this, you poor things. How did you get so mixed up? Right? And if you're just fearless, there's no connect. And they have to go look for somebody who has their vibrations. So it was very interesting. And the Guru's power is the power above all. You know, you just call on Master. Swami tells the story in the path about being very interested in meeting a disincarnate entity. It's, it's, I won't tell the whole story, but it's in the path. He heard about disincarnate ent entities and he thought, that's for me. <laughs> and he went to sleep and he, he dreamed and he was in the presence of one. He said he heard an om, but a negative om, like a dark om. But he said the, the entity that he encountered was very, very powerful. And it began, at first he thought it was really interesting, but then he felt him being really sucked down into this dark channel. He was beginning to lose consciousness. And so he said, Master! Instantly it went away. Because as soon as you turn toward the light, you're just out of their vibrations. Okay, but you know, if they're powerful, and so it's nothing to mess around with, believe me, because this is a dead person. You don't know if you're dealing with Stalin or you're dealing with, you know, some the milkman who every once in a while kicked his cat. You don't know what you're dealing with. So you don't want to play with it at all. Because there is a lot of power. There's a lot of power on the dark side. People can channel a lot of that. And people who want power, you know, can go around scaring people, trying to make people do bad things, much more than we realize. So you have to stay in the light. You have to stay devoted. Don't be at all afraid of it, because it's nothing except being encountered by a person that you don't like. You can get rid of people you don't like by just using your strength to get rid of them. Um, yes. Mm -hmm. I recall, I was mentioned to you that about before I joined Nananda, that, that I felt that for a few days. You make a protective field, Om Tat Sat, you can say, and you make a protective aura like this. If you really have a problem with this, and you could have a problem with it because maybe in the past you dabbled in the dark arts, you know, Om Tat Sat, Master said, write Om on your pillow at night before you go to sleep. And the Om vibration will keep you safe. The Master can always keep you safe. Right, om. om. The Om, the symbol for Om. Yeah. I don't mean A-U-M. Yeah. Write the symbol, write the Sanskrit symbol for Om. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I, I guess it, I'm thinking it's my sister. And they would be dark and they would be ugly. But after I start saying Om, you yeah. never Yeah. See, it's as simple as that. Yeah. You have the power within you to chase it away. So there's nothing to fear, ever. There was a question over here? Don't be so don't also don't be so paranoid. It has to be it has to be a whole life pattern. You know, it's not like 
they sit there and you become a little inattentive, you know. It's not, it's not at all like that. <laughs> I mean, if, you, if you're in the light, it doesn't happen. It's, but it's nothing to mess around with. It's nothing to mess around with, Vivian. It's about hypnosis. Master did not favor hypnosis. Master said it is, the hypnosis is spiritually bad for you because you're putting your consciousness, you're subjugating, you're, putting your, you're, you're, you're surrendering your will to someone else's will and that's not good for you. Now I'm slightly a little confused because I know hypnotherapy is common and people that I know and like have trained in it and do it. I quizzed someone once about hypnotherapy and what I heard more sounded a lot more like guided visualization than actual putting somebody's, taking over someone's will with the power of yours. You know, like stage hypnotism where people act like chickens and, you know, things like that, where they, they just do things they would never do because their conscious will has been taken over. Master said that's bad for the hypnotist, that's bad for the person being hypnotized. It's just not something you want to do because that that's the epitome of what we're talking about. It's surrendering your will, and you don't want to do that. Um, but I don't know, when I spoke to my hypnotherapist friend, and some of you may know more about this than I do, she talked about the, the point of putting people in trances, which was a level that she wasn't involved in. Um, because she got very upset when she heard that Master spoke against hypnosis, because she'd spent years, and she thought it was very helpful to people. So we, we made a distinction there. That's affirmation and visualization. We're not talking about that. We're talking about somebody else putting you into a trance and taking over your will. So forget what people call hypnotherapy. What Master spoke against was that. Sharon, do you have a question? Of course, but Master still spoke inherently. Now, again, even um, uh, even going to channeled entities and asking for advice, which is what I've been talking against ever since I got up here last week, is better than not believing there's anything beyond this world. So if the first thing you do to tell you that there's a greater reality than the one I've thought of before is to go to channeled entities and sit there and let them tell you how to run your life, that is forward, right? And so you have to always think about where you're standing. But, but here... It's not forward, okay? And, but we even sell those, such books at East-West, and on occasion, although we've had a, a moral dilemma about having people who channel come there. And in fact, when Jacqueline used to run the store years ago, Jacqueline and Vasudeva ran it, J Jacqueline was, like, was confronted by a man who'd been her friend for 25 years, confronted in a, in a friendly sense. But he was a channel. And he said, essentially, I'm a good man and I do good work. <laughs> And she said, I know you are, and you do. So she let him come. You know, so even among these things, there's... there's the, the, Brenda, is that what you were going to say? Well, I was just going to say, it's a step on the path. It's a step because on the path. Many, many people who first became awakened by and I think that you could have... Again, you realize, and I'll say it one more time, a, a, a channeled entity is a dead person. Okay, a dead person can be any kind of a dead person. <laughs> They can have many different reasons for doing it. They can even be doing it because they really think it's a good idea. Because it's the best way they can think of to help people. And so they try to help people and then they may gradually figure out, just like any of us who have tried to help others, we find out gradually what certain things work better than others, don't they? And so you try something out for a while and then you realize that even with the best of intentions, 
being codependent really wasn't such a great idea, for example, to use a, a common example. But you didn't mean to mess up that person's life. You were trying to be helpful, but you just weren't, right? So, so there can be uh, dead people who are in the astral world who think that if they can just get somebody to use in and speak and everybody will listen and will say, love your brothers and sisters, and everybody says, yes, yes, that'll help them. And then they'll do it for a while, and then they'll gradually see that for various reasons it's not working so well. And then they'll go on. Or there can be people who are genuinely evil who are doing it for bad reasons, but who knows? But you can't judge them, that's the problem. You see, you can't tell what kind of a, a, a person you're dealing with. You can't look at their moral character, you can't look at their purity, you can't look at the difference between what they say and what they do. You can't really look into their eyes. You can't know them as a friend. That's the hard part about it. And the person channeling is completely incidental to the person being channeled. You see the difficulty? Nonetheless, it's a higher, it, it, it proves the point that something is going on here that I ought to check out. And so it, it, it moves people forward. So it's all to the good, ultimately. All right, any other questions? Yes, Marilyn? Well, we've been talking a lot about... Well, yes, and... But everything works through channels. Mount Swami talks right in here about people in the astral world who are good, walk around, populate the earth, and inspire people with good ideas. And he lists, they inspire scientists with scientific ideas, artists with artistic ideas. So much more than we realize we're receiving, there are people helping us. Now, the, the, the point is that everything works in an orderly fashion. If, if you look at everything, as below, so above. Everything works in an orderly fashion. If you want to do something, you'll ask some people to help you, and then you'll sort of encourage them, and then they'll come up with ideas, and it, it all works, um, even just in a simple organization. Bill Gates doesn't tell everybody what to do. He tells a few people, and then they tell people, and then they tell people, and then they tell people. He doesn't supervise, supervise the shipping. But from his inspiration, it goes all the way down to the shipping, and an institution is a reflection of who's ever in charge because there's a trickling down effect. So our masters inspire us through instruments. And those instruments are often their helpers, their angelic helpers in the astral world who have been put in charge of us. I mean, look at Swami Kriyananda. He's a perfect example. Swami Kriyananda has been put in charge of us, right? But most of us don't see Swami that often. So we read his books, or somebody else tells you. Or you look at his picture, and maybe you feel an inspiration from him. Or you look at Master's picture, and you feel that inspiration. Are we getting that directly from him? Are we, are we getting that from an angelic being who's more directly connected to Yogananda than we are, who's, got, who's our guardian angel and is particularly telling us? I'm not sure. But nonetheless, whatever it is, it's a direct channel to our source, whatever that might be. And the more, it, it, it was, it's very interesting to me that Swami makes such a point of angelic beings inspiring us in here. Because he's really just trying to tell you how it's organized. That we're not alone. We're just not alone. We're surrounded by conscious individual forces who are trying to help us. And we would be surrounded by our guru bhais, who would be acting on behalf of our guru to help us. And they would be, uh, I, I can't explain it more than that because I haven't a clue you know, how it really works. But it, it helps, at least it helps my mind to think of it as being part of a team. You know, there's the team on this side and then there's the team on the other side. 
and we're all working to manifest Master's work, and they're all working to manifest Master's work, and they're doing it by getting in tune as they can and vibing these ideas out, and we're all working together. And they may be specializing in the colors of the temple. Master assigned them the job of the colors of the temple, so they're tuning into the colors of the temple, and they're getting Elizabeth's attention. No, not that color, right? <laughs> there, there it is. Ask him to mix those two tubes together. Hey, why don't you mix those two tubes together? Why does it occur you? To occur to you to do that. It's fun to think about. And it just like it makes you, it gives you, see the other thing it does is it gives you a way of really personalizing this experience. You know you're in a constant conversation with Master or his minions. I don't know who you're talking to. But sometimes you write Swamiji a letter and his secretary answers you. That's how I feel about it. Sometimes you send Master a prayer and one of his angels will tell you what to do. Because the angel gets the answer first and more easily, and then the angel passes it on to you because he has more time to hang around and talk to you. None of them really exist anyway. None of them really exist anyway. They're all just dimensions of consciousness. <laughs> You're a scientist. You're a scientist. <laughs> well, none of them really exist in the sense that they're all plates of, they're all they're all pieces of glass filtering the sunlight. I, I'm being a little flip about it. I, it's a little bit late, so I'm being flip. <laughs> Ask me again at the beginning of next week, and then maybe I'll be more serious. The honest answer is I haven't a clue. I thought it was fascinating to read that there's angels hanging around giving us our ideas all the time. Yeah, yeah it's really comforting. I just, you know, make some extra chairs in my office. We need some help in here. <laughs> but, I mean, you just, just enjoy it. Why not? There's this woman. I'm going to close with this. There's this woman named Natuzza of all things. She's an Italian woman. I don't know if she's still alive. She was a very great saint. Swami Kriyananda knew her from a very young age. She was so in both worlds that she was a servant in someone's home. She would open the door and people would be standing there and she would ask questions like, are you alive or dead? Because she could just see both sides that she could not tell whether people standing in front of her were physical or astral. And she said there would be people in the house and she would have to set the table for dinner and she would have to find out who was alive and who was dead because the dead ones wouldn't eat and the others would eat, you know. Are you sure she wasn't no, 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 she was a true, she was a true saint. Like, it's an obvious question, isn't it? But see, the difference is they were, they were, she was able to see what other people couldn't see, whereas he was coming out of subconscious. See, for him, he was just making them up. They were subconscious. These had object, this was higher and lower. This was real just not normal, not common. Perfectly normal, but not common. So Master said too, he sees the astral world all the time. He can see it just as easily as he can see this one. So is that how this book is written? Because to me it read at first... He's not channeling an entity, he's channeling a consciousness. No, he's channeling consciousness. See, that's, what, that's the point here, which we'll get to after next week, when you should read the next two chapters. You channel consciousness. See, if you're channeling an entity, you're just channeling that entity's consciousness. Who, what is it? It's a dead person. If you're channeling consciousness, that's your choice. And the angels, that's what Rick said, they're not really there. The angels are channeling consciousness, so you'd be a channel for that angel. But what you're really channeling is angelic consciousness. Because it's yours. It's not somebody else's, it's yours. Well, that was interesting. That wasn't from memory. I just figured that out. Okay. So I have Okay, that's it for tonight. We've done it. Next two chapters, part two, I think there's two chapters.